0: Good morning. Today's scripture reading is found in Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. In the Pew Bible, it is on page 802. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge are walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evil doers not only prosper, but they put God to the test, and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then, once more, ye shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning.
1: morning. I want to just welcome you once again to the service of worship and I want to say a word of thanks to all those that have led us so far in worship. What a joy it's been to think together and to sing together, to pray together. And what a great privilege we have now to open the word of God together. And so I'll ask you to um, take your Bibles once again and return to Malachi chapter 3. We'll pick up the action this week in verse 13 of verse 3. Let me just uh, say this. So there are three types of people in the world. Uh, those who understand math and those who don't. Okay. No, but I'm sure you've heard that kind of expression before. Usually it goes something like this. There are two types of people in the world, and then the person goes on to name some sort of a distinction that separates one group from the other. Um, That's often uh, a funny thing to point out, and, uh, and it's especially funny when you hear that the world can be broken up now into three people, But then you discover that it actually only is two groups of people. Um, I say that just kind of as a setup for our passage today because we'll discover, or at least on the face of it, there are three groups of people in our passage. But at the end of the day, uh, it's just really two groups of people. This is a passage all about distinctions, we want to see one group in light of the other group, the, the comparisons, the contrast between them. And ultimately, we'll want to do some self-examination with the help of the Holy Spirit to determine the group that we fit into. And uh, the good news about this is if you're in the wrong group, uh, there's still an opportunity for you today to uh, repent and believe and be part of God's people. Uh, well, that's kind of uh, the setup. I, w- I really just want to dive into the text and use the bulk of our time to, to wrestle with it and to understand it so that we might put it into practice. We'll break this passage up under two main headings. Um, really, these, this passage uh, has a lot to do with the words that people speak. And we'll notice that in the first half, There are some harsh words, harsh words that are spoken. And then in the second half, some more helpful words, harsh words, and then some helpful words. I'll have some further subdivisions for you as we go along. Uh, You're used to that by now. I like to smuggle in lots more points than I um, give you at first, but let's just get into it. And with the help of the Lord, we'll. Uh, seek to understand this passage so this is as I said a, a passage that's all about the words that people speak and it's interesting in such a passage that the the Lord himself gets the first word and the last word and his first words as we come to verse 13 comprise the sixth and last in a series of grievances that he has aired against his people through the mouth of his messenger, Malachi, his, his prophet. Uh, as you know, if you've been tracking with us, and if you haven't, that's okay. We want to welcome you here to, uh, to our church and to this study. Uh, but uh, we've been tracking through a number of these grievances that the Lord has against his people, areas that they are falling very far short of, his, his glory and his standard. And this latest grievance is found in verse 13. God says, your words have been hard against me. I imagine that at some point in your life, you have been the recipient of some hard words, some strong words, very harsh words, angry, accusatory, assaulting kinds of words the kinds of words that the book of proverbs describes as being like sword thrusts that just wound you as they as they land on you and maybe these words have been directed at you from a parent or a teacher or a boss or a spouse and it you know you know how it feels it it just leaves you beaten down and cowering in a corner and what makes it worse is that None of those harsh accusations are true. These are all, that's part of the pain is the things that, the harsh things that people are saying about you are not true. Now imagine that God himself is on the receiving end of harsh words. This is precisely his grievance, that his people have been speaking viciously about him. And they've been speaking against him. That's the language of the of the text. And they've been doing so among themselves. So the word for speaking in verse 13 is reciprocal, which means that um, the idea is that these people have been speaking such things to one another. They're against the Lord, but they are speaking these things to one another. In other words, they've gotten together for gossip sessions against God, if you can believe it. These people have been poisoning each other with harsh words against their God. And right away, there's a danger for us to note, I think. And that is possible. It's possible even when you are among the the so-called people of God. It is very possible for you to engage in unprofitable conversation. For example the the Apostle Paul can warn one of the New Testament churches and us by extension about church folk who uh, accumulate for themselves teachers who tickle their ears and basically just speak such things as will suit their own fancies. These things are untrue about what God has revealed and yet Here we have a group of people that are just speaking to one another uh, the things that they want to hear. In the same way, in churches, you will no doubt be able to find for yourself other people who will be glad to commiserate with you about how terrible your husband is. Or uh, people that will build you up with humanistic pop wisdom that They gleaned from a series of Instagram memes that week. And yes, you might even find in the house of the Lord people who will spew the most horrendous theology, who will speak untrue and ultimately harsh words against God. So you have to be very careful. And in Malachi's day, it wasn't just the Lord who was airing grievances. His people were very comfortable airing all kinds of grievances that they had against him. Their their words were hard against their God. And evidence of that is, you know, the insolent incredulous you, you hear that tone, the combative defensive response that by this point in Malachi's prophecy, we're almost expecting. We're expecting this from the people. We've come to expect it. And in the second half of verse 13, sure enough, we find it. The people saying, how? How have our words been hard? What have we spoken against you that is so harsh? As if there's no possible way that they could ever be wrong. No possible way that the all-knowing God could be right. This is what the Lord is dealing with, you understand. People like this. And it, and it gives us one more opportunity to appreciate, and I hope you do appreciate, just how incredibly patient the Lord is with obstinate offenders, such as Israel is and such as we are. So patient. And, and the Lord's patient not just to hear that kind of objection, but also to respond to it. He, he doesn't have any obligation to respond to insolent, defensive, snarky comments like this. And, and yet he does. He tells them um, precisely what it is they have said that it is so hard, so harsh. And in this detailed explanation that he gives in verses 14 and 15, uh, we discover three things about this particular group of people. We want to understand their complaint, their condition, and their conclusion. So there's a complaint, there's a condition, there's a conclusion. First, we get to see the nature of the people's complaint against the Lord. They've said, it is vain to serve the Lord. What profit is there in keeping his charge or in walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. What's the use? You might recognize this as being very similar to the complaint that we found at the end of chapter 2 in verse 17. It seems like this was their basic beef with the Lord. You know, they had had at one point in their history, not too distant um, history, they had been in exile, because of their sin and their rebellion, part of the punishment that the Lord wielded against them was to send them off as slaves to their their enemies. And the Lord is incredibly gracious to have brought them back from exile and returned them to their homes and to their land. They were able to rebuild the city. They were able to rebuild the temple. And the people's expectation at this point is that the Lord's going to, Get ready to bless them immeasurably. He's going to blow their socks off with prosperity. Uh, the people were expecting that they were going to have abundant harvests and, and that they would have the, the leg up on all of their enemies. But as it turned out, exactly the opposite was the case. They were a, experiencing a great depression and in almost every way, economically, economically, Socially, politically, spiritually. This was a Great Depression era people. And the people's complaint essentially is, what's the point? What's the point of being a Christian? If I could put it that way. And you can see that in verse 14, which speaks in parallel of three actions and three payoffs. It uses Hebrew poetry to to show us in parallel three actions and three payoffs. So the three actions that, that are mentioned are serving the Lord, and this involves of course worshiping him and walking in his ways. And related to this is the second action, which is keeping his charge. That has to do with obeying his commandments, his precepts. This has very much to do with being faithful to the covenant that he has, has made and stipulated. And the third action is walking around in mourning. And that's a very difficult expression to interpret. Um, commentators aren't exactly sure how to. But it seems, it makes the most sense, at least in my mind, to understand this as referring to repentance. The, the, um, the sad and the dark kind of demeanor, the sackcloth and ashes uh, that accompany the confession of sin and repentance. So these are the actions that the people are uh, say that they undertake. And, and now let's note, what do they perceive as the payoff? If those are the actions, what are the, what's the payoff for these things? And the answer simply is, as far as they're concerned, nothing, nada, zilch. You know, uh, they say it's vain to do all of these things. There's there's zero profit in doing any of these things. Now, we could analyze that from a number of different angles. And not least of that would be to, to observe that one of the Lord's most basic problems with his people is that they were performing all of these religious activities in a half-hearted sort of a way. And that's probably being generous. Let's say quarter-hearted sort of a way. For example, as you'll recall, they were offering lame sacrifices. They, they weren't bringing in the full tithe. They were flicking a nickel into the plate. And so this is not a very accurate calculus on the part of the people. They haven't really been engaging in all of the things that they've been engaging in, at least not with a pure heart. It's like if you complain that you were in a dead-end job. I don't know if you've ever done that before. If you've voiced kind of dissatisfaction with your job, you've mentioned that you haven't gotten a raise in 10 years, well, on first glance, uh, it seems like you have a, a, a case. But then what if I went and talked to your boss? And, and he said, yeah. I mean, she's late every day. And then she spends the first two hours kind of circulating to people's cubicles to, to discover and to disseminate the latest gossip. And then when she finally gets to her desk, she's on Facebook most of the day. you'd quickly discover that that Susie doesn't really have any standing to complain about her job and about the way that her boss compensates her. So we could talk about all of those kinds of things, but I'm most interested in what Israel's response reveals about themselves. As Shakespeare observed, it's possible to protest too much And if you've happened to to see any uh, Karen videos, you'll understand that people's protests often reveal more about themselves than they do about the target. You see people starting up their phones when they get in a conflict with a cashier or something, and they're screaming and yelling at the cashier. The cashier's very calm. And... The, the person who's taking the photo says, oh, I'm, I'm uploading this when I get home. The world's going to know. And uh, the cashier's like, yeah, that's fine. What you discover from those kinds of videos, you, you learn a lot more about the Karen than you do about the cashier. And in the, in the present case, the, the complaint from the people of Israel reveals their condition. It makes it crystal clear. So we'll take that as our second sub-point here. We discover a condition, and it's a condition that's not the least bit flattering. When the people say there's no profit in serving the Lord, in keeping his charge, in walking about in mourning, what they've unwittingly admitted about themselves is that they were only doing these things for the benefits. The only reason they were serving the Lord is because they thought they would receive all sorts of fabulous perks. Get this, the the only reason that they walked about in mourning, in other words, that they repented of their sins, the only reason for that, or at least made a show of repenting for their sins was so that they could be blessed. It was for their own gain. Have you ever done that? You've said sorry, not because you meant it, but because it's a necessary step you you recognized. It was necessary for you to get back into a person's good graces, a person that you want somehow to profit from, It's bad enough to do this to your dad, right? Who you're looking for something from. How much more so when it's your heavenly father? To go through all the motions of of worship and prayer and repentance. When at the end of the day, all you're really interested in is what you can get out of it. What you can get out of him. This reveals a truly sick condition. It reminds me a bit of what we read about in Acts chapter 8. You remember when the apostles were preaching in the gospel in Samaria, and there was a magician in that town called Simon, and he believed the gospel message, and he was baptized. And when he saw that the gift of the Holy Spirit was given by the laying on of the apostles' hands... Simon offered them money so that he would be able to do that, that kind of thing as a, as a sort of parlor trick. So that people would continue to call him Simon the Great. But what did Peter say to him? Peter said, may your silver perish with you, because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part or lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart might be forgiven you. For I see you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Do you see that what what Simon said revealed the truly horrid condition of his heart? His relationship to faith, at this point, was purely mercenary. Mercenary. It was materialistic. And despite all of the outward activities that he had gone through, he was actually quite far from God. He had no part, no true lot with God. You understand, don't you, that this condition is not unique to people living in ancient Israel. And it's not unique to first century Samaria. It's quite possible that someone here today might be going through all of the religious motions purely for what they believe they can get out of it. Acceptance with church people, respectability in a community, more privileges from mom and dad, a relationship with a, a Christian young person from the opposite sex, financial assistance from the benevolence of a church. I could go on and on. I've seen a a, a number of these instances in my relatively short tenure as a pastor. You understand that the true condition of your heart might not be fully revealed, but you know what you're up to. And make no mistake, the Lord knows what you're up to. And if this is you today, I want to counsel you the same way that Peter did, Simon the magician. Here's my counsel. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart might be forgiven you. And that is the promise, that if you truly repent of your sin and if you truly turn to Christ in faith, You will be forgiven, and you will have part with the Lord. This is is the Lord's desire for his people, that they would truly repent of this terrible condition so that he might turn and forgive them and heal them. Don't forget the center of this whole prophecy, which we got to finally last week in chapter 3, verse 7. The whole prophecy centers on this gracious appeal where God says, return to me and I will return to you. That, that word, as we saw, means repentance. That's what it involves. And the, this is precisely what the Lord is seeking to draw from his people, true repentance and true faith. And the Lord is seeking to draw that out of you today as well. But with a certain group of people, true repentance is not forthcoming. Their complaint, even their condition, results further in a conclusion. And that conclusion is found in verse 15. Listen to the conclusion that they have deliberately come to that these people are brazenly setting forth as fact, they say, and now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. Now, in a previous sermon, I, I talked about how it's not only possible, but very probable that a Christian might struggle with the same kind of issue that these people were struggling with. I'm talking about the problem of the apparent prosperity of the wicked. When you look out and when you see how people who have no regard for God whatsoever, when you see that they're happy and healthy and wealthy and their kids are successful, that might... If you're, if you're thinking, that might lead you to ask a number of questions like Asaph did in Psalm 73 that, that Glenn read that Rob talked about. Now the issue is not typically with the questions. I'm just here to say it's a very, uh, it's a very um, reasonable and natural thing to do is to ask questions. The problem doesn't come typically with the question asking, the problems almost always come with the conclusions. Again, by the end of Psalm 73, Asaph is able to come to a biblical and a theological conclusion concerning uh, the conundrum that he, that he has. But in this case, the people have not consulted the Lord. They have not consulted his word or his will and, and they've come to a very unbiblical and even blasphemous conclusion, which sounds like it's being cemented even further into a conviction. This is something that they're gonna, that they're gonna stand on. This is a settled conviction that you will not be able to take, talk them out of. They say, from now on, we will say, That's the language there of the the text. Moving forward, this is going to be our statement of faith. Our our firm conviction is that the wicked prosper. The arrogant are blessed. One commentator calls this uh, blasphemous beatitude. You remember the beatitudes that Jesus preached? These are the the truths that are set forth by the the king about how things work in his kingdom. And, And Jesus said things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. But these jokers are saying, nah, that's not the way it is. Here's how things work in God's kingdom. Blessed are the arrogant. There's no profit in serving the Lord or in keeping his charge. You want to really profit, they say? You want to really be a prosperous person? Here's how be an evildoer. Here's the people's settled conviction. People that put God to the test escape unscathed, it's no problem. God doesn't even blink. There's no repercussions. In fact, such people are blessed by God. Now, this last statement is the worst, I think. I don't know. It's all bad. But but when you understand this in context, when when you see this in light of God's gracious invitation that we saw in verse 10, look back there. Verse 10, God's gracious invitation was put me to the test and and watch how I'll just open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out my blessing on, on all those that will serve me wholeheartedly. In response to that gracious invitation, these people are essentially saying, nah, Lord, We don't need to do that because we already know how it works. You open up the floodgates and you pour out blessings on the wicked. The wicked people who put you to the test. It's the audacity is just mind-blowing. The out-and-out contradiction of the word of God. This blasphemy is next level. And by the, by the end of verse 10, you're, you're kind of bracing yourself, waiting for the lightning strike. But what we're once again struck by is how unbelievably patient the Lord is. These are harsh words to speak about the living God. Instead of a lightning strike, What comes next in the text is actually a ray of sunshine. So let's turn to the second section as our second point. Let's see now some helpful words. Helpful words. You know how sometimes around this time of year, you'll be driving through some isolated flurries, and then um, without any kind of warning, suddenly you're just out of it. You just drive right out of it. Usually it happens when you're about three-quarters of the way down the Dansville Hill. Uh, you, you drive out of the nasty weather, and it's just clear. Well, we have that same kind of phenomenon when we hit verse 16, it seems to me. Because right up to that point, everything's dark and stormy. But at verse 16, it suddenly shifts to, to sunny and bright And one of the ways that Malachi makes us feel this change and notice it is by switching from the second person to the third person. So he goes from directly addressing uh, the people to describing and narrating what happens next. And that switch in the narrative, I think, serves to, to make us really sit up and take notice of what's going on. But what's even more striking is that this group of people that that we're introduced to, I think that's that's one of the most uh, surprising features is this particular group of people. And I want to tell you a little bit more about them. But before I do, I'll just let you know how we're going to tackle this section. From verses 16 to 18, we get to see three things. And many of these things are in contrast to the first group. First, we see a reverence, and then a response, and then a result. I'll uh, move through these, hopefully, um, quickly. So the distinguishing feature of this, this particular group of people that we're introduced to here in verse 16 is that there is a reverence about them. They are described in the text as people who fear the Lord, as people who esteem his name. And what this means, of course, is they understand that God is is holy, that he is righteous, that he is just. These people recognize his otherness, if we could put it that way, the fact that he is high and lifted up. Reverent people understand something of the Lord's worth. And, and such people are very quick to give God the honor that is due his name, the worship and the obedience that he is absolutely worthy of. There, there, you can sense a difference already when it comes to reverence. Right away, you see a distinction between this group and the group that we've just discussed. With the previous group, there's no fear of God Before their eyes, they're able to think and say the harshest, the most blasphemous things against the Lord, and they can do so without even blushing. But this new group is is reverent, and their fear of the Lord results in faithfulness. I want you to notice that. So, notice in verse 18 that they are further described as righteous and people who serve God. Their, their obedience, their service, their faithfulness is directly tied to their fear of God. Whereas that first group had no fear, and so it resulted in, a, in faulty service, which is, you know, saying the very least. So I, I just want you to understand how this is, this is working. The uniform testimony of Scripture is that the fear of the Lord is the foundation for everything. Not only is it the beginning of knowledge, but it's the basis for our worship, for our obedience, for our service. It's the foundation of our trust. This is how we can put our faith in God. And I don't think I'm oversimplifying to suggest that if you are right now experiencing any kind of deficiencies in your spiritual life, so, for example, if your worship is weak, if you are succumbing to sin, if you are anxious and have a hard time trusting the Lord, it's very possible that you have a reverence problem. It's pro- it, when the fear of God fails, then faith falters. That's what I'm trying to say. Fear is the foundation of everything. Everything. And something else that we discover about this God-fearing group is that they spoke with one another. Do you you see the parallel now with the first group? This first group also spoke with one another, but it had opposite content and opposite effect. This, This first group discouraged one another with harsh words that they were speaking against the Lord. This group over here encourages each other with helpful words about the Lord. Now it's true that we're not ex- we're not exactly told precisely what they spoke to one another, but it's safe to assume that they were whatever they spoke, these were reverent, careful, biblical words, words of truth. It's very possible that that this particular group is struggling with the same issues that this other group was struggling with, which is, you know, the apparent prosperity of the wicked. But this this group, this reverent group, spoke about these things in a way that was holy and therefore in a way that was helpful. Friends, listen, you're going to be speaking with others. That's just inevitable, okay? That's how God created us. That's... As Matt uh, taught us in Sunday school today, we, we've been created in the image of God to be in community and to be communicative. So you're going to be speaking with one another. The question will be, is the group that you're speaking to and listening to, are they speaking harshly or helpfully? Is, is your sounding board your coworkers? You know, your girls, your buddies, your classmates. Do you, do you take your cues from conservative podcasters? Probably not the best people to be getting advice from, if we're being honest here. I'm not saying that you shouldn't listen or you shouldn't be f- friends with them, but what I am saying is when it comes to the most important issues of life, You need to be speaking about these things with others who have a fundamental fear of God. People who won't be afraid to speak truth to you, even when it's uncomfortable. People who want to encourage you with the realities of who you are and who God is and what God has done in Christ and what God is is going to do. Friends, we need to speak together with those kind of people. Well, Let's look at the response, which is found in the second half of verse 16. The response is this. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. That is an incredibly encouraging response. It's a little bit surprising, especially when you consider the highness and the holiness of this God who is to be feared. If you're not careful, you might make the mistake of thinking that such a one is is cold and and distant and and far off and this god can't be bothered with worms like like we are but nothing could be further from the truth the lord condescends to to hear and not just hear but to pay attention i love that love that Expression there in the text. And you know this. You can tell the difference between someone just simply hearing you, listening to the audio waves that are crossing their eardrums, and when that person is really paying attention. You know, your, your kids, for example. I hate to always be bringing up kids as illustrations, but uh, they just furnish so much uh, material. I, I can't resist. So you're talking to your kids and and you're giving them instruction and they might say that they're listening to you. They might even kind of give you a nod here and then, but they haven't looked up from their phone. And so you say, pay attention. And maybe you have to like grab their face and physically move their eyes so that they're looking you in the eye. And this text tells us that the, the godly, the reverent, never have to do that with the Lord. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cries. You get full-on eye contact with the Lord God. Nothing else preoccupies him except the people who fear his name. And then we read of a book of remembrance. And this is really the only place in Scripture that we um, hear this phrase explicitly, this, this particular book of remembrance. But the concept, I think you can see right away, is certainly throughout the entire Bible. The image here is of a king who, who keeps meticulous record of the goings-on in his kingdom, the things that are happening among his people. And what is especially in view is the noteworthy people that have done noteworthy things. And these are people that the king desires to bless. So we come, I think the closest equivalent to this is something like what we read in the book of Esther, chapter 6. We read that one night the king couldn't sleep, so he gave orders for, to, to bring him the book of memorable deeds. Uh, The Chronicles, he called them. And so one of the servants came in with the book and and read to the king out of the book. And in the course of that reading, they came across the name Mordecai. And this is a man who had warned the king of a plan that people were hatching for his assassination. And someone on the king's behalf had, had noted this brave act in the official book this book of remembrance, so to speak. And the king was just now finding out about it. He, he asked, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Because that's what you do when you write a, a person's name in a book of remembrance. It's for the purpose of, of honoring them and giving them distinction. And the answer was, in this case, uh, nothing. And so the, the king quickly remedied that You'll want to read the rest of that story. Uh, it's, a, it's a good one. But that's the idea, okay? Now picture this taking place in heaven. The Lord has an angelic servant make note of his people who fear his name and who are speaking among themselves, encouraging words, words of truth, words of, of, of real hope. And that's what gets the Lord's full attention. And that's what he's going to remember about us. Get, isn't that wonderful? That's what the Lord remembers about us. He doesn't remember our sins. He, he's cast them into the deepest ocean. What he remembers is our, our speaking and our service. What a God. But it keeps getting better. The passage goes on to record that the Lord's declaration about us is this. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. My treasured possessions. Think about that. All that the king owns, which is everything, everything that he has access to, the king still has his most precious things. These are his treasured possessions his crown jewels for example the stuff he keeps in the safety deposit box those are his most treasured possessions so what are god's most treasured possessions don't lose this folks notice this this is this is so encouraging god's treasured possessions are you his people you should you should do what maybe someone did for you this Christmas, which is to give you a gift that is personalized. Maybe it had your name engraved into it. Do that. You should do that with scripture. You should personalize these sorts of things. So if this is true of you, then hear the Lord declare you, and insert your name, are his treasured possession. And he will spare you as a man spares his son who serves him. The, the language here reminds us that, that this God that we fear is a God of justice and a God of wrath. Yes, he's exceedingly patient, but there is a time coming when he will judge the world with equity, the Bible says. And that is going to be a terrible time. I want to encourage you to come back next week. This will be the season finale of the book of Malachi. And we'll learn more about that great and awesome day of the Lord. But 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 for now, just understand that there's going to be a people who are spared from the wrath that is to come. God's sons and daughters will be spared. And you ask, well, how is that that possible? Well, we come to understand in the rest of Scripture that God spares us and calls us sons because he did not spare his own son. And out of great love for for the lost world, rebels, obstinate rebels like we, God sent forth his one and his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a a life of perfect righteousness and who died as a substitute for sinners like me and you. People who once had absolutely no fear of God before our eyes. People who were formerly blasphemers. But Jesus dies in our place. So that by repenting of our sins and and turning in full uh, belief and faith in Christ, we might be spared from everything that we deserve. Instead of destruction, those who put their faith and trust in Christ receive the full forgiveness of sins. Imagine that every wrong thing that you've done, every wrong thing that you will ever do, fully forgiven. In Christ. That's what you get. And not just that, but you get to be called sons of the most high God. We can we get to be called his most treasured possessions. Why? Again? Because he gave his most treasured possession in order to redeem us. What a God. What a gospel. Did you notice another um, subtle shift here? Malachi is moving us from the present into the future. So, so all of a sudden, he's talking about a day that is to come. And on that day, he says, the distinction between the wicked and the righteous will be clearly seen. Again, more on that in the, in the next week. But for now, I want you to notice how the Lord is actually addressing the issue at hand, the thing that everyone is struggling with. What do we think and what do we do when we see the wicked prosper? Is there really a distinction between the wicked and the righteous? And the Lord says, of course there is. And that distinction will be very evident on that great final day. And so we wait. And we trust. That's what we're called to do. In the meantime. That we're to look forward to that time. That was the secret that Asaph found. You'll recall from Psalm 73. It's when he went to the sanctuary of the Lord. It's when he de- discerned. The the wicked people's end. Is when he understood that there really was a distinction. Our. Our. Uh, in just a few minutes now, our small group is going to be going to the Lehman's. And uh, rumor has it that we're going to get to eat chicken and rice. So I'm looking forward to that. But think about this. Would it be fair if I, two hours ago, let's say, I went ahead to the Lehman's house and pulled the chicken and the rice out of the oven and sampled them and discovered the, the chicken to be raw and the rice to be hard. And then to conclude that Barb Lehman is a terrible cook. <laughs> this is a thought experiment, okay? This bears no... Okay, This is not reality. But of course not. That would be idiotic. That would be half-baked. Of me to do that. In the same way, friends, don't judge the Lord by your feeble sins. And you should certainly not come to conclusions before what He is doing has been fully baked. When all is complete, on that great day, the Lord will act. And the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Will be plainly evident for all to see. And already it can be seen, because what you can find, if you have eyes to see, is the righteous who are fearing him and who are serving him and who are speaking among themselves about his goodness and about his grace and about his mercy. That's that's what you can see even today by the grace of God. So friends, brothers and sisters, may these things be seen in us by the grace of God and for his glory. Amen? Amen? Amen.